Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. He regarded the package with complete concentration, not moving, his hands folded. Extraneous questions, such as how Morris's number one idea girl might have discovered his address, did not occur to him. They were for later, for Cal Bates, unimportant now. With a sudden, almost absent move, he took a small celluloid calendar out of his wallet and inserted it deftly under the twine that crisscrossed the brown paper. He slid it under the scotch tape that held one end flap. The flap came loose, relaxing against the twine. He paused for a time, observing, then leaned close and sniffed. Cardboard. Paper. String. Nothing more. He walked around the box, squatted easily on his haunches, and repeated the process. Twilight was invading his apartment with gray, shadowy fingers. One of the flaps popped free of the restraining twine, showing a dull, green box beneath. Metal. Hinged. He produced a pocket knife and cut the twine. It fell away, and a few helping prods with the tip of the knife revealed the box. It was green with black markings, and stenciled on the front in white letters were the words, G.I. Joe, Vietnam Footlocker. Below that, 20 infantrymen, 10 helicopters, 2 B.A.R. men, 2 bazooka men, 2 medics, 4 jeeps. Below that, a flag decal. Below that, in the corner, Morris Toy Company, Miami, Florida. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, your host, continuing my reviews of stories collected in Stephen King's Night Shift collection. This week, I'm reviewing Battleground. The eighth story is printed in the collection, but first published in Cavalier Magazine in 1972. Battleground tells the story of professional hitman extraordinaire John Renshaw. For $10,000 or more, Renshaw will kill whoever you felt was in need of killing. His amorality allowed him to do the work, but genetics, training, and discipline made him a master of it. He had kept in the business long after many of his contemporaries had gone to, as King writes, quote, that great unemployment office in the sky. After a lifetime of expert kills, Renshaw doesn't think twice about taking a job to kill Hans Morris, the founder of the Morris Toy Company. It's actually a real easy gig and paid far more than the hitman's minimum. Returning to his hotel room after doing the deed, Renshaw is given a package sent to him by Morris's mother. And inside that box await one and a half inch army men waiting to avenge the toy maker. Infantrymen, helicopters, jeeps, and more armed men exit the locker and immediately start their attack. While it may seem easy to kill these tiny troopers, their bullets cut into Renshaw's skin like bee stings, and their heavier arms actually threaten real damage. It's a battle to the death in his 40th floor hotel room. As far as King's stories go, Battleground is one of his least original. The idea of tiny men attacking a larger, theoretically stronger opponent is thousands of years old. I mean, this is the classic David versus Goliath battle, only where David has his slingshot, here these little army men have military choppers, bazookas, and rocket launchers. Though, these army men are indeed far smaller than David. But then my mind goes to Gulliver's Travels, a book almost 250 years old when this story was published, and the Lilliputans who were able to entrap Gulliver and overpower him until he talked his way out of it. Even the ideas of toys as attackers was done in the 60s in a classic episode of The Twilight Zone. So when this story was published, 
This concept was as old as time, let alone when I'm reading this now with visions of Toy Story, small soldiers, demonic toys, puppet master, child's play, and so many more in my head. But if the story isn't original, the real question becomes, is it told well? And on this, I'm a little bit torn. On the one hand, King has often used his stories to provide an allegory for real-world situations. One of his strengths is how he can address human problems such as alcoholism, bullying, infidelity, child abuse, obsession, disease, and more, but putting them in the context of fantastical monster stories. But in trying to look for such insight here, all I find are some ideas that aren't just mixed, but mangled. For instance, the box in which the army men assassins are delivered specifically says it's the G.I. Joe Vietnam Footlocker. Now, never mind that in 1972, G.I. Joe figures were 12 inches tall, and the ones in this story seem more akin to those baggies of little green army men you used to buy. But when King invokes Vietnam, certain images come to mind. Was this story going to be a reversal of Vietnam? The basic brushstrokes for such an idea are there. For example, Renshaw is a very wealthy man who's succeeded on every kill he's been assigned. As such, he could easily be seen as a personification of the United States heading into the Vietnam War. I mean, we'd won every war we'd fought, and we're in the midst of economic growth that had continued to rise for a couple of decades. And yet, here this mighty assassin was going to be felled by small soldiers that, by all appearances, should easily have been wiped out. But as soon as he engages in battle, he realizes he's underestimated his opponent. And early on, I was sure that's what I was reading, a toy take on Vietnam War. But unfortunately, the deeper I got in the story, the less this rang true. While it may have played into King's concept that army men have helicopters that repeatedly buzz Renshaw shooting for his eyes just feels too American. Now, perhaps this is my 21st century view coming into play, but when you mention Vietnam and helicopters to me, Flight of the Valkyrie starts to play in my head and I think of Robert Duvall loving the smell of napalm in the morning. The deeper the story goes, the more the troops clearly seem like American armed forces, especially when the story ends. Worse still, at one moment, Renshaw looks into a mirror and King writes, quote, In the bathroom mirror, an Indian was staring back at him with dazed and haunted eyes. A battle-crazed Indian with thin streamers of red paint drawn from holes no bigger than grains of pepper, end quote. This metaphor for Native American war paint made me briefly consider this story as cowboys and Indians, but that would have worked better if indeed the toy men were cowboys, like in The Indian in the Cupboard. I finally gave up looking for meaning when the army men demanded Renshaw's surrender, and Renshaw replies with one word, nuts. This is an obvious callback to World War II and the Battle of the Bulge. So obvious, I needed Wikipedia to tell me about it. But in that battle, the Germans demanded the U.S. forces surrender, and U.S. General McAuliffe sent that same one-word reply. So now King has the little army men as Nazi soldiers and Renshaw's the Allied forces? And we all know who won the Battle of the Bulge. So that's when I gave up trying to look for meaning in this story. In the end, I have to take Battleground as just a straight adventure with no coherent deeper meaning. But in that regard, it actually works quite well. At only 10 pages, the story whips by. King provides just enough information to let us place Renshaw as a character type before the action breaks out. We know he has a killer instinct. His recollection on his own survival rate tells us he's good. And when the mysterious package arrives, King writes a great scene that I quoted in the opening of the assassin being cautious with the package, thinking it may be a bomb or some other way to kill him. 
which it is, but not in any way he could imagine. These scenes tell us Renshaw is smart and dangerous, so it became a battle where I honestly wondered who would reign victorious when the story ended. Perhaps because this is a story from Night Shift, and it seems more often than not the protagonist dies at the end, I was placing my bets on the small soldiers, but as the story drew near the end, I began to have my doubts. And that happened when Renshaw had a burst of inspiration. He climbed out of the window of his 40th story hotel bathroom, walked across a narrow ledge, and had an opportunity to catch these little bastards off guard. Now, I'm not going to spoil if it worked, but I mention that because how could I read a full page of this story, 10% of its length, where Renshaw carefully navigates a high ledge outside a hotel room and not think of The Ledge, another short story in Night Shift? I reviewed The Ledge back when I was looking at all the short stories adapted for the film Cat's Eye, but it's actually printed four stories later than Battleground in the Night Shift collection. It was smart of King or his editors to put this story first, for after reading The Ledge, how could any other tale of a man doing a tight wire walk on a narrow balcony compete? Certainly in this story, it feels like a very abridged version of The Ledge, here being but one suspense piece of many rather than the story's focus. But the similarities are many, from an almost fall to a bad encounter with birds. Now, if you look back at King's chronology, The Ledge was published in 1976, Battleground four years earlier in 72. But obviously something about this scene stuck with King and how he could expand upon this idea to really up the terror of heights and being so close to falling. Fortunately, here the focus stays on the army men rather than having an extended Ledge sequence mid-war. But in reading that scene and many others, I found King's writing to be deft and exciting. The battle escalates, with each side having their moments of advantage. King provides no background for how the army men came into existence. Are they simply advanced toys? Are they spirits of dead soldiers? Are they regular toys come to life through magic? No explanation is given, and none is really needed. Now that contrasts with the story I reviewed last week, Sometimes They Come Back, when I felt the ghost returning from the grave to haunt Jim Norman really needed some kind of explanation, however thin. And I think that's because when bad things happen to good people on a supernatural basis, we need an explanation. The house is over the headstones. The parents burned the child killer. Voodoo. But when bad things happen to bad people, I'm less demanding. In the best tradition of Tales from the Crypt, Twilight Zone, and more, an evil man does an evil act, and through his deeds, he encounters a mystical enemy and gets his comeuppance. That the toy maker's mother sent these figures to Renshaw five days before her son was killed is a strange detail King chose to include, but in the heat of battle, it all ceases to matter. Another detail never explained is what the toy man had done to deserve death. Was he involved in mob ties? Was Hasbro pissed that he was making G.I. Joe figures when they held the trademark? Well, a contract killer asks no questions and a battleground reader gets no answers. Though I do have to wonder what these army men would have done had Renshaw accepted their demand for surrender. If their mission was to avenge the dead toy maker, would they have taken prisoners? Summary execution? Torture? Taken him to the toy maker's mother? In the end, it doesn't matter. Renshaw fights and gives us a few more pages of exciting battle scenes. The ending is a bit confusing at first, as until then, the story had been told in the third person but only from Renshaw's perspective. The shift from character-based narration to omniscient narration was jarring. 
but the rest of the story is a really fun read. And while I was reading, I did think this story had one real missed opportunity. Why? Why was this not the third chapter of the movie Cat's Eye? To refresh your memory from my previous reviews, Cat's Eye was the 1985 film that adapted two Night Show short stories, Quitters Incorporated and The Ledge, and then ended with an original short story, King Named General. General never seemed to fit in with the other stories in Cat's Eye, but Battleground would. First, it involves small, murderous creatures, which King would write into the third story. Here it's little army men, and in general it was a tiny troll that lived in the walls. Second, Battleground takes place in a big city. Quitters Incorporated was set in New York, and in the film, the ledge was Atlantic City. Now, in this short story, it's Miami, but that easily could have been relocated to New York or Atlantic City. More, it involves organized crime, as did both the short stories included in Cat's Eye. Now, yeah, the ledge sequence here is redundant to the ledge, but I'm sure that could have been easily rewritten. But while Battleground didn't make the cuts for Cat's Eye and has yet to have a movie adaptation, there were two screen versions of the story made. Most people know of the second, but the first is perhaps more interesting. In 1986, this story was adapted by some animators in the Ukraine for a 10-minute animated short named, and apologies for bad pronunciation of a Russian word, Srajene, which translates to The Battle. It's only about 10 minutes long, and you can find it on YouTube. While it's mostly a silent piece, there are helpful English subtitles added by the YouTube poster. The animation is of a pencil sketch comic book style, which reminded me strongly of the music video for AHA's song Take On Me. The short mixes a few things up. The attackers aren't US Army men, nor are they trademark G.I. Joe figures. To update for the 1980s, they're little robotic men wearing helmets with snouts that reminded me of the video game Qbert. The entire short is actually heavily influenced by 80s video games. It even opens with their version of Renshaw playing the equivalent of an Atari 2600. And to keep updating for the 80s, one of the army men's little tricks is to pull out a satellite that fires lasers, an obvious reference to the USA's Star Wars initiative. In fact, while there are no US flags or markings on the attacking military, I have to think at the height of war paranoia in the mid-80s, this film works very well as a Cold War story with a Russian hitman being attacked by the US military. And the ending, which matches King's original story, works really well in that regard too. The animation is a bit dodgy and it's not bloody at all, unlike the source material, but it's certainly fun and worth checking out if for no other reason than the very 80s score with its video game themes and heavy use of sax. I'll post a link in the show notes for this episode at booksandnachos.com. You can check it out. But more recently, and more famously, this story was adapted for the TNT Network original series Nightmares and Dreamscapes. The series, as the title would suggest, mostly adapted stories from King's 1993 short story collection of the same name. But the premiere episode was actually adapting Battleground, the only episode adapting a Night Shift story. It was a good series, it only lasted 8 episodes, but had some well-known, talented actors involved like William H. Macy and William Hurt. The production values were high as well. 
It's good to see a Stephen King short story series come to fruition. It had been discussed since the original publication of Night Shift in 78. NBC, for quite a time in the late 70s and early 80s, really wanted to do a Night Shift anthology series, but it would finally come to be with Nightmares and Dreamscapes in the 21st century. And as we don't review TV series over at Now Playing, I'll give a brief review of that adaptation here. The episode aired in the summer of 2006, and playing Renshaw was William Hurt, best known for his work on some of my favorite films like The Big Chill, A History of Violence, Broadcast News, and The Accidental Tourist. While the Academy Award-winning actor isn't as visible now as he was in the late 80s and early 90s, and he does seem to be taking more roles for paychecks than for art, looking at you, Incredible Hulk, he is a very talented actor who can really bring a character to life. And that talent proved useful in this production, which is an entirely silent film. The Russian animated short was nearly silent, as was the short story, but here, no one says a word. When Hurt is around people, he isolates himself with his iPod. We see people mouth words, but never hear their voices. Then, during the attack by the little men, Hurt grunts and roars, but never does a real word escape his mouth. He's a bit older than I imagine Renshaw to be, and in a little worse shape than I would think for a impressive hitman. But despite that, Hurt creates a believable badass. To stretch this 10-page story out to a full hour-long episode, and to establish Renshaw as a character, the episode actually starts with the murder of Hans Morris. The death of this toy maker shows us in action what King tells us in prose, that Renshaw is silent, effective, and deadly. He also has a penchant for taking a souvenir from each of his kills. In this episode, Morris is not portrayed like a real toy company CEO sitting in boardrooms and looking at Chinese labor costs, but rather this Morris is a tinkerer making special toys in his office. We still never know why he was killed, but it's done brutally. Rather than being set in Miami, Morris is killed in Dallas, then Renshaw immediately returns home to his penthouse apartment in San Francisco. Having the killer return home helps both add an indeterminate amount of time between Morris's death and Mrs. Morris's package arriving at Renshaw's. Plus, it helps the logic, slightly, that Mrs. Morris would be able to find where Renshaw lives a bit easier than which hotel he'd chosen. The bulk of the story follows King's prose almost exactly, from the cautious way Renshaw cuts the twine and tape from the package, to the mirror he uses to peek around the corner at the warmongering figures. In many ways, the story is very faithful to King's original. But there were minor changes. The figures are a bit bigger, sized more like three and three quarter inch G.I. Joe figures than tiny army men, but they are painted green from head to toe, like the smaller figures. And then, rather than setting up tents to camp, they hide under a sofa for their attack. But for the body of the story, it's the same. Now, in my mind, reading King's original short story, I pictured the army men moving like figures. But in this adaptation, they're played by humans. They're not CGI nor puppets. Blue screen effects are used to make the soldiers seem incredibly tiny standing next to Hurt. And the compositing is believably done, though not perfect. Some degradation of quality can be seen within the superimposition. But this episode was directed by Brian Henson, son of Jim Henson. The Henson Company did the effects for the entire series, and Brian's eye for effects, scaling of elements, and even puppetry for the army choppers was put to good use. Especially the choppers, actually. So many times, I've seen camera shots from inside the cockpit of airplanes, helicopters, and spaceships like the Millennium Falcon, but never have I seen outside the cockpit a giant William Hurt. 
Seeing the scene where Renshaw has to climb out on the ledge looked a million times more real than the similar scene from the short story in Cat's Eye 20 years earlier. But yet, with the TV budget, it still looked a little bit faker than it should have. Overall, though, I'm not going to be too hard on it. The effects are better than I'd expect from TV at the time, just not film quality. But what was of film quality, and the highlight of the episode, was its star. With all these battles, Hurt, through his body language and expressive face, constantly lets me know what's in his character's mind. His shaky hand as he gives himself sutures from the wounds they inflict, his wide-eyed astonishment as the army men haul out artillery, and his fury as he pulls out his own machine gun all put me in Renshaw's head, even though he never speaks a word. And it's a bloody adaptation. The reason the Night Shift short story anthology could never be made for NBC was because of network censorship. TNT plays a lot looser with the rules. When he goes and stitches a wound in his own leg, it had me wincing. Now, the episode does end differently than the short story. Again, I think they had to pad it to fiddle the running time, but this episode gives Renshaw what appears to be a definitive victory over the toys, only to have one more toy emerge, <laughs> this toy version of Rambo. Complete with the red bandana, this commando figure chases Renshaw as he tries to escape his building, cutting his ankle and pulling out a toy machete to try and gut the much larger man. It's this final battle that provides the episode's climax. Though, at the very end, the short story and the episode do finish on the same note. Really, Battleground was one of the better episodes of the eight produced for the series, much due to Hurt's acting ability. And I give it a recommend, it's worth checking out. And I'll review the rest of these episodes when I get to the Nightmares and Dreamscapes story collection, which was published in 1993, so honestly, it's going to be a few years. But for the original source material, Battleground is a pretty good short story, and looking at it as originally written in 1972, it's better than most of Stephen King's output at the time. But let me know what you think. Join me on the Battleground of the Books and Nachos forums. There's a topic thread for every review I've done. Come and let me know what you thought of this short story or either adaptation. And also, if you enjoy these podcasts I'm doing, I'd really appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. That's the best way to spread the word about this show to others who may become new listeners. And please, writing a couple of sentences as well as the star rating really helps tell people why they should give it a try. And if you also mark other five-star reviews as helpful... That helps them become more visible still to other prospective new listeners. And I'll be back next week with another Stephen King review. Continuing in order the stories are printed in Night Shift, I'm going to be reviewing Trucks, the short story adapted for two films, most notably King's only time in the director's chair for a film, Maximum Overdrive. Now, I do usually try to time my short story reviews with when Now Playing is doing their movie reviews, and right now we've just begun reviewing the Sometimes They Come Back trilogy. But I need to work a bit ahead. NowPlayingPodcast.com is going to be covering Maximum Overdrive and Trucks this June, but during that time here on Books and Nachos, I'm going to be taking a break and Stuart in LA will be hosting the show for a while, reading and reviewing the Planet of the Apes novels while we review the Planet of the Apes films for Now Playing's Spring 2014 donation series. So join us now over at NowPlayingPodcast.com while we continue reviewing the Sometimes They Come Back and all the Stephen King film adaptations. I'll talk to you next week, and in the meantime, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. One of the flaps popped free of the restraining twine. that but when the germans demanded u.s forces surrender and u.s general mcculloch sent that same one world one word one word one word doop